0: For my next uh, five talks right up through Christmas Eve and including Christmas Eve as you've picked up if you've been part of the service here today we're talking about hope and we're going to be looking at it through the five senses of hope and we're going to have a theme verse that we're going to be going back to over and over again during this time and so it's a prayer and it's a beautiful prayer and listen to it From the book of Romans, chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You may abound in hope. Let's pray as we look into God's word. Father, how we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, as we've been singing, you are the cornerstone in all points to you, it all resides, and you foundationally are the cornerstone. And we thank you that by the power of the Spirit, we can live for you, we can live a holy life. A life of service, a life of peace and joy that this is talked about in this passage. Not maybe an easy life, but a life empowered by the Spirit himself. And so, Lord, as we look at these things and consider this, we pray that you would speak to us personally and as only you can, and we pray about this in, in, the, this in Jesus' name. Amen. As so we are talking about hope this Christmas season, and from a human perspective, we typically think, I think, of, of hope as a wish. I wish something. I wish in the future this would take place. And this is how we understand human speaking, the idea of hope. And of course, that perspective on hope or that approach to hope is based on the strength of a person's desire. Here's hoping. Here's hoping this will be the case. And so, for example, if you're in school and uh, you have a math final approaching and you really want to knock it out of the park, and your hope is that you're going to do really well on this exam, what do you do? Um, You do a lot of good things. You do your assignments. You do your homework. You pay attention in class. You try to ask good questions and interact when it's appropriate with the instructor you review the material, and you study and prepare yourself well. And based on those kinds of activities, you have a pretty good expectation, a pretty good hope that you're really going to knock it out of the park on the final exam. But what happens if when you get up to go to class and write that exam, you have an accident on the way? It's upsetting, and it's very distracting, and it's hard to focus in the exam. Or the night before, um, you know, your next-door neighbor in the apartment beside you, their baby is teething, and the kid is up, you know, wailing and screaming in pain all night, and it keeps you up so you don't get very much sleep, and you wake up with this pounding headache, and when you go to the exam, it's really difficult to concentrate because you're tired, even though you've prepared well. This curveball has come, and it's hard to do your best. So given given those kinds of circumstances, that kind of hope, as I would understand it from the dictionary, it's relative. And because it's based on the fact that there's people involved, it's based on their abilities, and it's based on the circumstances that they're a part of. And all of those things are limited, and all of those things are uncontrollable. Biblical hope has a completely different foundation, as the opening verse talks to us about. It says... In Romans, there it says there's this confident expectation of what God Himself has promised: that he will deliver it, and he will deliver it based on the power of the Holy Spirit, based on the very faithfulness of the God who never lies, the God who never fluctuates, the God who never changes in his court character and his attributes. And so biblical hope, I might define it this way: biblical hope is the future of faith. It's the future tense. Of faith, And so what we want to do during these Advent weeks together, this December month, this Christmas season, is we want to look at the real story of Christmas, which is the story of Jesus, through the lens of the five senses of biblical hope. And so as we talked about earlier in this service a couple of times already, the idea will be framed around the taste of hope. And we read this verse earlier, or we referred to it earlier. In Psalm 34, it says in verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so all through the Old Testament, right, really beginning in Genesis chapter 3, all through the Old Testament, and in the opening books of the New Testament, there's just this, this, there's this trumpet-like announcement that Jesus is coming. And the Messiah is going to come. And you should expect him to come. And we see all through the scriptures, this big meta-narrative story that's flowing back and forth through it, of the purpose of why Messiah will come and why this is such a watershed moment in history. And we read about it in the different accounts of the story of the coming of Christ. The purpose of why he came. So let me read one of them to you from Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And in that culture when you were engaged, you were really seen as being married. It's different than how we would understand it. But before they came together, and what that passage means is before they had sexual relations with one another. In fulfillment of the prophetic test, uh, fulfillment from Isaiah chapter 7, where it says, a virgin supernaturally will be with child. And this birth of Christ is in fulfillment of the prophetic words written about 700 years before his birth. But before they came together, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. And what that means is in a society that highly valued at least talking about being righteous, much more and in a way we can't really understand in our culture. There was was different levels of engagement with this. And so in the culture, they had this righteous view or outlook or expectation. And then there was people called Siddiqs, of which Joseph was one, that took the idea of righteousness to an entirely different level, a heightened level of expression. And so because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, a Siddiq, and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he could have shamed her in front of everyone He could have theoretically had her stoned to death for what he considered an act of betrayal. But because he was a righteous man, he did not want to do this, and I'm presuming because he loved her, he did not want to do this. And so it says he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So as I said, being engaged was much more serious for them than us. It was like being married. And so it really called for a divorce at this stage in his mind. And so he was going to divorce her quietly. But Matthew continues, and he says, But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And we serve a God who still speaks to people, even today, in dreams and in visions. And many people are coming to faith in Christ around the world through dreams and visions. And in the dream, God said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is actually a holy thing, is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because, and so here we're going to understand why all this took place, because he will save his people from their sins. And so the reason Jesus came at the heart of it was to save his people, meaning me, meaning you. To save me, to save you from our sins. And this is at the heart of the communion, which we shared today. So what I want to do is consider this idea of hope through the sense of taste So if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 6. John is in your device or in your paper copy. John chapter 6. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's one of the biographies of the life of Christ and, uh, and how that all rolled out. So in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47 through 56. John chapter 6. And and in John chapter 6, Jesus has been speaking to thousands upon thousands of people, and he supernaturally feeds them, and he's dialoguing with them as he does this. But he says some what we would consider, at the very least, some very unusual things in this passage. And so he begins in verse 47, or I'm going to start there at least. I tell you the truth, he who believes... And understand scripturally and biblically, the word belief does not mean that I just check off a box and say, yes, I think that's true. The word belief in Bible always means I, my life is changed in light of that. That I commit myself to that. That it changes the pathway that I'm going. And that if, in fact, I don't allow that to happen, I actually don't believe it. Belief always results in change from a biblical perspective. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. In other words, some people choose to eat this bread, and some people choose not to. Some people choose not to eat this bread, and they find themselves continuing to be alienated from Holy God and on a pathway to hell. This is what he's saying. So nobody can make this choice for me or for you. It's a very individualized, personal choice. Your forefathers ate the bread in the desert, yet they died, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. God's perspective is always that he's not willing, he's not desirous that anyone should perish. God's orientation is he wishes that everyone would receive what he's offering. And so he says, I'm doing this For the whole world. But some people will accept it, some people won't. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real blood, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So when we read this, for us at least, it's quite unusual. I would say I would go further and say when you first read this passage, it's actually somewhat upsetting. It's even disturbing. It says in verse 53 there, Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. And so, you know, when you first read this, at first blush, you you can almost be thinking, like, is this guy mentally ill? Is he somehow suggesting that we become cannibalistic in our orientation? Like, what's going on here? And in the text, it sets off a furious debate, it says in verse 52, as the learned people of this society and all the masses of people that are there, the thousands and thousands of people, are listening to what he's saying, and this is just disturbing to them at the core when they look at it in a surface-like way. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? It's like he's saying he's going to hack off an appendage and we're going to chew on this. And I would argue that many of them are under misunderstanding what he's saying to the extent that, to the extent that if you keep reading in this same passage, in verse 66, the, and, and in the verse surrounding that, they're saying, this is very disturbing, this is hard to accept, I don't get it. In fact, it upsets so mu- some of them so much that they just pick up and they leave. People that have been following him, people that want to follow this message and commit everything in their life to it, get up, and they decide to walk away and they bail out on him. Now there's debate about why they left. Some people would suggest it's simply because they've come to the place of understanding that he is not the kind of Messiah they have been taught to expect. So they've always been taught to expect that the Messiah that's coming is going to have a political orientation, that he's a warrior-type king, that he'll ride into Jerusalem on a white stallion, which is symbolic of these things, that he will lead the nation of Israel to a place of worldwide prominence, that he, if they're being oppressed as they were at that time by the Romans, and this is something that's gone on all through their history and still does to this day. And this warrior king will lead them to a place of victory over the oppressor and bring them to a place of political, um, pin- the political pinnacle in society. And this is what they've always thought Messiah would be like. And all of a sudden, they're actually starting to listen to this guy and they're going, This is not the kind of Messiah he is at all. So I'm out. So some people think this is why these people bailed here. But I would suggest, based on the context, much more straightforward approaches. They're just going, this is deeply repugnant to me. The idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In fact, those that were there, many of them could quote large portions of the Old Testament. Many of them, in fact, could quote the entire 39 books of the Old Testament verbatim and studied it a lot. They knew that in the book of Leviticus in chapter 17 that they were expressly forbidden to drink or to eat blood. So they're going, this guy's telling us to break one of the clear statements of the book of Leviticus. And so I think the reason they were so upset is because they were misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. He's not talking about literally eating his flesh. Like cutting off an arm and and eating it. Or literally cutting his wrists, draining blood out and you drink it. He's saying my life as represented by these images is a sacrifice for you that must literally become your life. That must become your life. And so he says, taste. I am the living bread, the bread of life. And then he gives them an illustration, that the story they all knew about. He says, listen, I'm not physical bread like the manna that back in the book of Exodus uh, was provided to the people of God as they were walking in the wilderness, and they didn't have enough to eat, that every day God would supernaturally provide manna for them to eat for this large group of people, two million plus people, every day. Uh, it's not like that kind of bread. They ate that kind of bread, and we're all given bread like this by God, one of the gifts of God, bread. But if that's all you have in life, eventually you'll die. We need this to survive. We need physical food. We need stuff to drink, obviously, right? But they ate just the manna, and they eventually died. And he says, let me contrast with you what I am. I am the living bread. The bread that has eternity, the blood that has eternity stamped on it. And so the sacrifice of me will be for your sins, so that you can live forever. As he says in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread, in contrast to the manna, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this living bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life Of the world. And so here he says, as is expressed all through the scriptures. So don't miss this. This is one of the big stories, the one that starts right in Genesis 3 and goes through the whole book, right down to through the 66 books to Revelation. The big story is the key to a genuine relationship with God lies exclusively, and here he uses this unique language again I am the living bread. No other living bread out there. And you don't have to agree with Jesus, this is a free country, but don't make the mistake of thinking he would suggest that there's numerous ways. You've believed a lie if you think he said that. No, he says, I am the living bread. And so the key to a genuine relationship with God lies exclusively in the person of Christ. And it all points to the cross. And so when you taste the bread, it provides this rich imagery. It it provides the the image of the the very physicality of Jesus himself. And so think with me in your your mind about this physicality. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself and took on human flesh. That he was born, he grew up, he, you know, had to have his diaper changed, Um, he needed food to eat, he experienced emotions, He he, he, he banged his thumb with the hammer, all of those things that we do as a carpenter and a carpenter's son. He lived through all of the things we've lived through. The book of Hebrews says in two different places, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, that he experienced every temptation we experience, without exception, and yet did not sin. Do not think he didn't sin because he was God. He did not sin, Scripture clearly teaches, especially in those two places, because he was the Spirit-filled God-man, a man full of the Spirit. So he experienced every temptation without sin. So try to imagine this with me. And the physicality of the bread reminds us of this. He's never known sin. And yet he came and had direct contact and lived with people like me and like you. That would have been tough. Someone who is absolutely, totally pure in close proximity with that which is impure. So when you taste the bread, be reminded that he did that for you. You know, when he was arrested later, and his coming points to the day when he would go to the cross... When he was arrested later and they pay people off to lie about him and it's manufactured charges and they conspire to kill him and they eventually murder him on the cross. Bear in mind that he created us. That he has ultimate power. That the next breath you take is because he gives it. And at any moment through that whole process... He could have called on millions of angels to rescue him at any moment. But instead, he allowed himself to be humiliated, to spit in his face, to mock him. The taste of the bread reminds us of this, the physical presence to go through these things, the juice We hold the cup in our hand. And this is something I, I almost always do when I have communion. I look down into the cup, and there's this juice, and I think about what it represents. It's just a little bit of liquid with a particular taste, but it represents the blood of Christ voluntarily spilled out for me and for you. It represents the drops of blood. He was under such intense pressure in the garden and during the time of his false arrest and the false accusations, under such intense pressure that he actually sweated out his glands and his pores, rather his pores sweat drops of blood, which a person can do when they're under extreme duress. He went through the beatings, the crown of thorns. I've touched those thorns. They're like this long. They're razor sharp, jammed into his head. The nails, the spear in his side. When you taste the bread, when you drink the juice, they're very powerful images. Three times in the context of John 6 here, Jesus refers to the importance of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It makes us look to him. It makes us be reminded of him, to be reminded of the transformation of his life for us. And it, and it also, this t- passage it says it here in verse 54, but I'm going to read it again in verse 40. It also points to what's to come. It says in verse 40 as well as 54, it says, For my fa- this is my Father's will. In other words, this is God's plan. God's plan for everyone. Is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him. So the idea being, some will not. Some will, and some will not. For this is my Father's will, my Father's plan, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Basically the same thing said in verse 54. In the action of Christ at the cross, in coming and then going to the cross, is salvation. And when we taste of that, We have this relationship with God that has eternal life stamped on it, as it says in verse 40. And the promise that one day, and this is another image, that he will come back and we will be raised from the dead just like him. And so we believe, or we don't believe. But if we believe, we surrender our life. We ask for our sins to be cared for and forgiven and cleansed. We receive him as Savior. We bow down to him as sincerely as we know how, as Lord. We say, Lord, would you start just just stepping into our life and directing every choice of our life and be the Lord of our life. And then I look forward to the promised resurrection that you have given for me. And so when we taste the bread and we drink the cup, it's not about being saved again, that's a, or that, that he's somehow being sacrificed again, because he's living bread. It's, it, it, that's not what this represents. It's not him going through the whole thing over again. It's, but what it is at the same time is it's, it, it's referring back to when he did this, but also how that's been at work in our life, for me, just before I became a teenager, for you, there'd be a time or an era in your life. Um, so we're not being saved again or something like that. But in a, in a strong sense, it's a renewing of our faith when we do this. It's a, an outward confession of renewal. I'm thinking back to when he did what he did. I'm thinking back to what he did in my life and how that's transformed me now. And now openly and publicly. And outwardly, I'm renewing that. And so there's this trumpet call that announces the coming of Christ, this biblical certain hope in which we're saying in, in the future tense of faith, I'm affirming all of these things to be true because they rest not on circumstances that can fluctuate, not based on people's abilities which can come and go, based on things that happen to them or their capacity. No, this is based entirely on the foundation of the living Christ, on the finished work of Jesus. And it all comes back as I'm reminded when I take the bread and I drink the cup of the birth of Christ, of the life he lived on my behalf the pure among the unpure, going to the cross when he knew in detail what was going to happen, but he went anyways, and then rising from the dead three days later, saying, I'll come back one day and do the same for you. And so what I want us to do is pause and allow us to taste it again. And I'm just going to carve out some time of reflection. And maybe during that time of reflection, you just want it to be personal, your own thoughts. Maybe you want to write something of appreciation to Jesus. Use one of the cards in front of you if you'd like to. And taste again the time, or go back to that time in your life or that area in your life, when you realize these things to be true, when you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. When the sacrifice of Christ transformed your life, we're told that we become a new creation in Christ. And praise him for that. Thank him for that. And then reflect and taste again um, what life has been like since that. And be grateful. And finally, anticipate the taste of the future. When we taste the bread and drink the juice, We confess or renew these things. So we're going to have some time of silent reflection, and then I'll just pray when we're done. So Lord Jesus, when we take the bread into our mouth and we begin to chew it and we feel the, the grains and the flour and all the ingredients of it and the texture of it or we drink the juice and it has that particular flavor, there's something, uh, it reminds us of the physicality of you. Of the lifeblood that you poured out for us and as we've said all of these things we have this commonality no matter where we're from or who we are when we're together in Christ and we have that bread together and we drink that juice all those other things are set aside because we're one in Christ And we thank you for that. We thank you that you made that all possible. That for everyone that has this relationship with you, not only do you walk with us each day, but we will celebrate with you and celebrate you for eternity in heaven with eternal life. Thank you for that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name.